Hello and welcome back. My name is Cornelius McGrath and this is The Junto, a space where game changers from all over the globe gather to have the conversations that truly matter. My guest today is Alex Kosher. A quick Google of Alex's name will present you with an immense litter of his many accomplishments. NCAA fencing champion, Notre Dame student body president, Truman Scholar and Rhodes Scholar. But at his core, Alex is a humble boy from Columbus, Ohio, who is constantly looking at the world a little differently to the rest of us. He is a fearless thinker and somebody who understands how to curate change and reach people where they are. Alex and I caught up in London for a rich conversation about identity, conflict, winning as a habit, how to relate to people, what fencing can teach the world, and what it looks like to earn your stripes as a scholar. You won't want to miss this one. Without further ado, here's Alex Kosher. Alex Kosher, welcome to the Jinto, sir. Thank, Thank you. you very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Cornelius. This is great. First podcast ever. So. I'm, I'm absolutely honored that with a good good view of well we got south bank here and we got the bt tower yeah we got the beautiful london skyline and i'm very happy because it's it's been a bit hot this week hasn't it it's been a bit hot that's the one thing i do miss about america is is the lack of ac yes yeah yeah i've had to get used to that last summer all of the fans in oxford sold out wow yeah, and Amazon wouldn't even deliver them uh, because this, wherever the stock was that they were pulling from was also sold out. So not not yet this year, but uh, could get there. Could yeah, get there. British summertime. Yeah, British summertime. It, it, it makes the most of us. But anyway, look, I, I'm so thrilled to have you on. Um, Alex Kosher is, is is really one of the first names I ever heard when I, when I stepped onto campus at ND. And as I was preparing for this episode... I actually remember, I think we met the first day of freshman orientation. You might not remember this. We were at McKenna Hall and you were presenting on kind of your journey at ND to all the incoming international freshmen because you were an American, but you'd had such a global experience. Yeah. Uh, slash, I think you were trying to convince everyone that life was okay outside the business school. Yeah, life is okay outside the business and school. I think, that, I think we met on the first ever day that I had programming at ND. Was that at international orientation? At McKenna Hall, second yeah, floor. Sure. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, we were both a little bit younger back then. Yeah. Uh, that was six years ago. Yeah. Coming up on six years, August 19th, 2019. So um, I just wanted to say to everybody at home that this is a thrill to just, you know, what's half a decade later to be back here in my home and, and your new home away from home, uh, having a conversation on everything that, you know, you've achieved since. And um, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking so much has changed, but, but also so much hasn't. And I'm, I'm hoping we can get an opportunity to, to kind of dive into that today. Great. So um, this is a kind of Jinto tradition at this point, but my first question is always, uh, who is Alex Kosher, for those that don't know, and uh, how does he think about the world? How do I think about what? The world. Well, isn't that the question? Uh, well, it's interesting, because you asked that we talk about identity, and I was reading this book by Corey Robin on political fear, where he talks about identity cleavages. So already I'm starting at the political, but, uh, but he talks about identity as you know, the fundamental question of who are we and who are we in relation to our uh, nation, our immediate culture. Um, and I think for me, I've now been in Oxford for a while. I've been in the UK for four years, which is two years longer than I ever thought I would be here. Um, 
but I, I feel sort of drawn between a number of different identities. Um, I still have this huge part of me that uh, is a Notre Dame graduate and appeals to that quite a bit. Uh, I think a lot of my friends get tired of how much I talk about Notre Dame or my time at Notre Dame or the things that Notre Dame is doing or students at Notre Dame are doing. Um, and I'm from Ohio originally, Columbus, Ohio, and decided that from the UK, I would still do my research for my thesis on politics and poverty and anti-poverty policy in Ohio. And so uh, I'm sort of threading that piece of my identity as I, as I think about um, what I'm interested in academically and, and politically. Um, so I'm, I'm balancing all of these different pieces. Uh, and I think it has made me see the world in a uh, perhaps much more generous light. I think people are doing good work all over the place. Um, people who I graduated with from high school and grade school who are in Ohio are doing excellent work there. Um, Notre Dame students I'm constantly inspired by uh, who are seeing campus as an opportunity to, to learn how to organize and how to push for um, making their immediate world a better place. Uh, and then the, some of the research I see going on in, in, in Oxford or across the board uh, also aimed at that. Um, That's awesome. How would, your, uh, how would your parents describe you, you think? And, and, and would that definition change over time? <laughs> how would my parents describe me? Let's see. Well, I, I remember uh, one time for, for a class, we had this reflection paper and we had to ask, uh, it was called a clear, clear, clearness, clearness, yes, clearness committee. And what class was this? This was, so this was at Notre Dame and this was a class called Heart's Desire and Social Change. And wow. with Father Dan Grudy? With Father Dan Grudy. Legend. Uh, Father Dan Grudy and, and Matt Bloom from, from the business school. Brilliant. And now it's an institution. I was in the first, first original class. Uh, which was which was pretty cool, and it, it ended up being me and a lot of my friends who were seniors, um, many of whom were thinking about going into business in some capacity, uh, and this class was a chance to reflect on four years and also get a sense of what your values were. And as part of this, we had to do a clearness committee, where we asked people who are our peers, our mentors, our parents. Uh, someone even asked, I think, a bunch of his ex-girlfriends if they would if they would uh, <laughs> submit some some writings. It was very courageous. That's amazing. Uh, but uh, you have to ask them a series of questions like, you know, what do you think I value? Um, when have you seen me at my best? That sort of thing. And in conversation with my parents, uh, I remember telling them kind of walking them through my senior year and reflecting a little bit out loud uh, to them. And I had been taking this acting class called Acting for the Non-Major. And I loved it. I thought it was so fun. Uh, it was for my fine arts requirement, but it was just a blast and had a great professor. I had great, great students. And I, and I told my parents, I said, you know, uh, I, I don't want to disappoint you, um, but uh, I'm going to quit everything and just go off and join an acting troupe. I hope that doesn't ruin any, any plans you have for me. And I was kidding, although I think acting is, is an incredibly important endeavor, but for myself at least. And my parents said, uh, oh, we don't have any plans for you. And it wasn't in like a non-ambitious way. It was just in a, they, they had felt like they had pushed me to a point where they, they, they trusted my conscience, they trusted my judgment, they trusted 
um, the, the, the points of view that I would seek out when making certain decisions. Um, and I think that's a credit to them, really, because they uh, always treated me very independently. I'm an only child. Um, so we always, you know, we had, we had good conversations over dinner. Um, they, they pushed me to, to read and to, to think out loud, uh, with them, uh, and, and really kind of pushed me in that very independent direction. Uh, and I think that's kind of influenced where and how I'm, how I am now. And is that, is that independence? Is that, is that something you always thrived on or at times it was kind of like, Oh no, I'd love some direction here. Yeah. Well, I think with that independence, I'm I'm very relational, um, and as an only child, I one of the things that I did was sort of seek out older siblings. Um, so I grew up uh, fencing, and I was fencing with a club underneath the Ohio State varsity team. And so I, as this really young grade schooler into high school, kind of adopted a lot of these older college fencers uh, as as older siblings. Now being a lot older, I realize and appreciate the amount of time that they gave me. I was thinking about if I was a college kid, you know, and, and a high schooler was sort of always there, um, the the patience, but also the, kind of the fun it would be to, to sort of have them under your wing. And so I really appreciate them doing that. Um, but I was always sort of in, in some sort of relational capacity with them and they uh, and they guided me. And I think my parents uh, were good at... Uh, directing me towards either themselves uh, or towards like the type of literature, the type of people that would help me think through a certain problem or a certain uh, issue in the world. Um, so I, I think there, it is that independence, but fundamentally it, 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 it's, uh, I, I like the relationality of, of life. I like being able to, to get to know people. I like being able to um, hear what people are passionate about, um, see what I can do to, to help exchange ideas like we're doing here. Um, so I think that relationality aspect is, is, is key. And so as we think about uh, your independence, uh, your time with your parents, your childhood journey through fencing, I'm, I'm interested, how much of an impact did, you know, Notre Dame's mission have on that, uh, personal development that you went through and, and how has that kind of impacted the way that you live your life, your guiding principles, or as I like to say, your modus operandi. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, so my relationship with Notre Dame started well before I, I got there. So my dad was an alum, 72, and uh, he was there at a, at a very different time than I, than I was there. Uh, he was there when there were protests around the Vietnam War uh, on campus. Uh, he was there to see priests lead some of these protests and the burning of draft cards um, and the stories that he would tell with Father Hesper being the head of, uh, of the university um, were really ones oriented around kind of the Catholic Church with a mission of justice, uh, social justice in, in, in the world. And that was my perspective on Notre Dame's capacity going in. Um, but before that, my parents always pushed me to, to sort of think about uh, how I, as an individual, we as a society relate to the other. Um, one of my first big memories uh, with, with my parents is that we visited the Holocaust Memorial Museum in uh, New England. And 
it's this beautiful uh, set of glass. Um, well, they're created to represent smokestacks, and there's quotes from survivors on on each of the stacks. Um, and one of them was about uh, this woman reflecting on having this friend in the camp uh, who found a strawberry one day and uh, in the camp somewhere or a raspberry and kept it throughout the day to give to her as a gift that night uh, on a leaf. And she said, imagine a world in which you, you have nothing but uh, friendship lets you uh, find the raspberry and give it to a friend. Of course, much more eloquently than I just tried to relay what she said. Um, but, but I remember that and I have certain experiences like that, um, that, that really were at the direction of my, my parents. So then entering Notre Dame, I was thinking, okay, I've got this community that really is, is focused on, on justice as, as its own way of, of thinking a modus operandi. Uh, and I was attracted to the mission. I think the mission is, is, is very important and we often forget the mission. Um, but the mission is to create a sense of human solidarity and concern for the common good uh, that will bear fruit as learning becomes service to justice. And I think that last bit uh, is key. Uh, learning is, is wonderful, but to, to what ends? And to the ends of justice, I think, are an important one. So when I got to Notre Dame, uh, I, I knew that I wanted to find a, a community within the Notre Dame community that was uh, uh, very... Uh, explicitly focused on justice. So I joined this group called Progressive Student Alliance. Now, before I arrived, uh, there was a, one of the campus newspapers is called The Scholastic. And the freshman issue that we received uh, highlighted the uh, No Home Under the Dome March, which was, I think, the year before. And it was in response to a very homophobic comic, uh, comic that was printed in the school newspaper, The Observer. Uh, and I remember reading about it and reading that Notre Dame did not have an inclusive non-discrimination policy around sexual orientation or gender identity, that it had uh, rejected applications for a Gay-Straight Alliance student club for a quarter of a century at that point. Uh, and people were protesting and, pe and students were upset. And I remember reading that. And I remember thinking, well, this clashes very much from the vision that I had that, that my dad relayed to me. Uh, and so I joined Progressive Student Alliance which was a recognized club and sort of had started from a living wage campaign, but had kind of become the hub of perhaps progressive organizing on campus. Uh, and there were wonderful seniors there uh, the year that I was a freshman, and they were incredibly inspiring, but they had been pushing for things to change around LGBTQ acceptance uh, and inclusion to, to really no avail. And you could see that it was starting to really wear and frustrate them. Um, but nonetheless, they, they kept trying and they kept trying to think of new ways to kind of frame the issue and push for the issue and gain allies in the administration. Um, and that really started w reaching them and, and meeting them and being inspired by them sort of really started my journey on campus that I like to think was kind of an embodiment of the mission of the university. Um, because then for another three years, I was working on uh, LGBTQ acceptance uh, as as part of a very coordinated and uh, cam uh, campaign called the Fortify Movement, uh, and we can talk about that more later if you want. But just thinking about how this mission uh, is 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 kind of a through line uh, to how I keep thinking about things, uh, 
I want that mission to be present in what I'm doing now with my PhD and my research. I'm interested in how uh, poverty uh, is thought about in the political realm. And today, and for the last 30 or so years, the, the general uh, dimension has been dependency politics, thinking, well, the, the issue is really not poverty, it's, it's dependency. It's the fact that people are on intergenerational welfare, that people uh, are lacking incentives to get into work uh, uh, rather than staying on certain government benefits. Uh, but the challenge there is that it's, it's, a, it's a particularly negative conception about the, the capacity of people who are in poverty. And it's unrealistic in the expectations of, of uh, just the empirical evidence that people who are poor are working uh, and they're working three jobs and they're still not able to get above the poverty line. And so there's a more structural conversation to be had. Um, there's a more justice oriented conversation to be had, which is hopefully what I want my thesis to be oriented towards. He, so I have a ton of questions and, and guys, yeah, sorry, I gave could, you a lot there. That's fine. I love it. Uh, and guys, as you can tell, Alex is uniquely interesting. So I'm going to try and take this piece by piece. So bring, bring me back to this. I'm really interested in, in, in the connectivity between this idea of learning becomes service to justice and then the medium in which you chose to, to actually actualize that mission. So, uh, P sorry, I progressive student alliance. I mean, someone's made this joke, right? PSA, public service announcement. Mm. I, mean, I think it's such a fantastic, yeah. you know what I mean? It's such a fantastic acronym for exactly what you were talking about. We tried to utilize that. That one didn't go as far, but it was a good, yeah, it was a good joke that we used. Um, yeah, I, th I think uh, so much of my learning happened from PSA and my work with them. Um, one of my Peace Studies professors, and I won't name names because I don't want to get him in trouble, um, but he, he told me, he told me, don't, don't let classes get in the way of your education, uh, which I'm sure other people have heard before. I love uh, that. But it, it was true in this respect. Um, I was doing Africana studies and peace studies for my undergrad, which I, I love and was such a good interdisciplinary education. Uh, and so much what I, what I was learning in, in peace studies, uh, had to do with conflict resolution conflict escalation, mm -hmm. strategic conflict escalation, um, and understanding how to build coalitions and alliances. And in fact, later on, not, uh, not in the, in the first two years, but, uh, I think in my third year, I was taking a class on nonviolent social change and I had two notebooks. One was for the class notes and the other one was for notes of how to take the class notes and apply them to the campaign that we were working on with progressive student Alliance. Uh, and, and it was great because, I mean, we would think of big ideas and all of these different actions that we might want to do on Notre Dame's campus that of course didn't come to fruition because you have to moderate it to whatever the environment kind of will, um, or whatever, whatever the, the comfort and environment for the people who you're working with, uh, have, but PSA kind of was this outlet for, um, experiential learning. Uh, about how to relate to people, how to organize, how to think about uh, values as a, a, in a very aspirational sense. I mean, I think, and I, I mentioned this before, we don't often live up to the mission of being a place where learning becomes service to justice, but we should. And I think part of the uh, beauty of that type of mission is that the heart of the institution is in the right place. The, the direction is in the right place. Sometimes we don't, as an institution, take the right steps. Uh, and all we were doing as students was calling the university to its, to its own stated values and its own stated, uh, 
uh, aspirations. And so learning about how to, um, how to do that, uh, how to bring people together. I think one of the best meetings that we had in this campaign. So this campaign was very broadly about trying to get recognition for the Gay Straight Alliance student organization. And did this happen in your freshman year? So this, yeah, so this- uh, it, was, it was kind of ongoing. It was it was ongoing. So we, we kicked it off at the end of my freshman year. Got it. Um, so that had, was 2000 so and- 2000, when was that? Oh my gosh. Spring 2011. Uh, we then had a more formal kickoff uh -huh. uh, in the fall of 2011. And then we were able to get recognition for the Gay Straight Alliance by December of 2012. And it was a sustained kind of campaign throughout and the- And was that through SAO? Ooh, was that was through SAO. Yeah, exactly. Got recognition. Um, and so uh, that was that was our that was our main effort. Um, and one of these memories I have was sitting down with members of the Knights of Columbus, which was a, a Catholic fraternal organization um, that generally was not in, in support of our of our efforts. But a couple of us sat down with the members. I think there were maybe 11 out of the 12. And we worked through our reasoning and our logic and obviously made personal appeals about the need for an inclusive environment um, for people of the, of the gay community. Uh, and we got 10 out of the 11 to personally agree. Unfortunately, we didn't get them to do an institutional endorsement, which is what we wanted, but we got 10 out of the 11 to agree. Wow. Uh, which was huge, which was huge. Um, and that, that was sort of a, at least a lesson for me on trying to meet people where they are and trying to uh, articulate things and values that 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 make sense to them. So talk to me about that. Your that happened in that fall, so sophomore year fall, right? Your, that, that happened, yeah. That happened spring of my uh, sophomore year. Spring, so you're 19 years old. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that. So how did you prepare for that meeting, right? How how do you go in into a tough environment yeah. um, and win people over yeah. in that way? I'm, I'm really interested in. Did you use specific techniques? What did you appeal to? You know, how did you prepare? Because that's that's an incredible learning, I think, about not only did you go to the table, which I think is fantastic, and if we think about global politics of the world at large today, so oftentimes that's the issue. People aren't even coming to the table. Number one, check. Number two, though, how do you create an amicable environment where there can actually be a discussion? Yeah. And then number three, the fact that you won over 10 out of 11. I'm, did you expect to win out 10 out of 11? Definitely not. Um, I mean, I think there were a couple factors going on. On the one hand, we, outside of that meeting, had created a pretty vocal movement on campus. Uh, I mean, part of our goal of the, of the campaign was that we want this to be the thing everybody is talking about. We want this to be cover-to-cover -cover news on The Observer. Uh, we want people to be submitting editorials. Uh, we want people to be seeing our posters and engaging in our events and we were doing that which was great and that was the credit to you know so many different uh groups that were kind of a part of this campaign and who's we at this point so we at this point it's it's not the royal we that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> we at this point was we sort of had a core organizing group within progressive student alliance um but the great thing is that we we were a campaign that wanted to be broader than psa and so we sort of put out what the tenets of the campaign were. Um, we wanted to bring allies into the fold. We wanted to get allies to the LGBTQ community to speak up. We wanted to make it kind of the thing that campus was talking about. And then we wanted these structural changes. And so we said, those are our three goals. And then we 
got support from other groups on campus and said, okay, if you want to do some sort of event, uh, great, do it, make it within those goals. And it's, it's part of the campaign. It's part of the movement. And so that allowed us to, to have a lot of different events and, and kind of campaigns going. So we, at this point was like a conglomeration of a number of different groups on campus, which was great. Uh, now there was still this kind of core organizing committee that would do a lot of the, the meetings like, like this one, but we had that as the backdrop for, for a meeting like this. Um, we had also done our research on the history of this type of movement on campus. So we knew that, you know, there were different flashpoints. 1991, there was a huge flashpoint in which people wanted recognition for a gay straight alliance. The initial one was in 1986 and it was denied very promptly. 1995, there was another flashpoint that led to the administration uh, taking out a five-page letter in the Observer saying, you know, we're not going to we're not going to recognize the GSA, but here's a bunch of other stuff we're going to do. Uh, and then there were many other flashpoints after that, and so we knew our history, and we knew that when the Gay Straight Alliance was rejected or whatever the form was at various times, uh, that the reason would just change over the years. So at first it was because we don't want to condone homosexuality as a lifestyle on campus. That was the reason from like 1986 to say 1995. Um, and then the reason was, well, because we're not gonna have a gay straight alliance because we already serve, we have enough resources on campus to serve gay students. Um, not obviously listening to the students who were saying that that's just not true uh, and we don't have that. And so the reasons kept changing. So we knew our history. So we were able to say, well, this reason's been given before in 1986, 19, 1991. It changed in 1992, changed back in 1995, that sort of thing. So we knew our history. Um, and we also knew the context of the university. Um, I think you see a lot of campus protests uh, in the news, which is great. Uh, and I think what's oftentimes missed in terms of coverage of that, those types of protests or whatever the um, particular event might be, is whatever the particular campus environment is. Well, Notre Dame's a Catholic university. It, it is unapologetically a Catholic university, as it should be. Um, so we're operating within that context. That is, in fact, the set of values and beliefs that draw a lot of people to the inclusive message that we were trying to, to spread. But unfortunately, it's also a, a, a justification that many gave for holding back from that. And so we were trying to work within that context. Uh, and utilizing you know messages from 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 the catechism from people's own understandings of 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 the gospel uh as well as telling personal stories and personal narratives and how those fit together we were able to have a great meeting with with people in the knights of columbus mm -hmm. um, because that uh spoke in in our common language. It wasn't just their language, it was our common language. I mean, we, we, we were all attending the university. These values are something that was important to all of us. Maybe initially we had different conceptions on how to get there, um, but we were able to start from that common language. You, you, you had the right intention. Yeah. I love that. So I, I picked up a couple of things there. Number one is do your research. Definitely um, do your research. Because I think, I mean, so the way I think about that story is I'm trying to think, okay, for those who are listening, who might be going into a big negotiation, uh, a conversation with a boss, uh, you know, a girlfriend, uh, a mum or a dad, uh, or even uh, are trying to think about, you know, resolving a big peace deal. Um, number one, do the research. Number two, what I love, and this is kind of your, you know, arc is reaching people where they are. So drawing from some common, and in this case, it was the catechism, 
that everybody could kind of see and, and relate to. And then three, politely explain through the use of narrative why you maybe saw that story in a different light. And then number four, reminding everybody that we're on the same boat. And although you might be on this side of the ship and I'm on that side of the ship, ultimately it's about furthering the university and, and, and pushing it forward together. Yeah, and that's to say that's what in terms of, I mean, we had a, we had, like I said, we had a core organizing group and those were generally the feelings shared within the group. And that's not to say that uh, in a different context or with a different um, issue, uh, that that's still going to be the same necessarily uh, kind of process. I think um, we thought about things like picket signs and bullhorns or sit-ins in the dining hall um, or sit-ins in the administration building uh, and ultimately thought that in terms of the numbers we needed, we weren't going to be getting that. It's outside the realm of kind of experience perhaps for Notre Dame students. Um, but doesn't mean it's off the table. It doesn't mean it should be off the table. And I think in some ways can be incredibly effective to, to push the, to push the conversation, uh, in a particular way. It just wasn't going to happen with, with, with us at Notre Dame, we think. Um, that said, although I think recently I've been reading about students trying perhaps sit-ins in the administration building about some of the residential life changes. I don't, I don't know if that's, uh, that's actually true, but, uh, you know, for, each each context is different and uh what people feel they will able to are able to get the numbers around is important well i do want to bring up something so a, a, a great mutual friend of ours and actually a, a, a wonderful guy that you introduced me to is steve reifenberg and he does a class on on co-creation international development i know he's fascinated by conflict but he always i think it's on the first day gives students a great book a switch by chip and dan heath and the idea of the elephant and the rider and how the elephant is the kind of the emotional side that we all have to us. And the rider is the kind of logical um, side that we have that's always keeping our emotions in check. And when you think about change, you have to appeal to both. And you have to be able to move the elephant with the rider. Because if the elephant kicked off, it doesn't matter if the rider is, is really skilled. In fact, you're going to fall off track. So I love the way in which... I think you've used that that framework and that mental model to appeal. So my question, is the way that you protest more important than what you're protesting for or as important? Because I am very interested in, yes, if you choose the wrong medium to get a certain message across, your, your argument could fall on deaf ears, not for the fact that it's not logical or doesn't make sense, but you're not reaching people where they are. And I think thinking about changing the university environment is, is critical for that reason. Wow, you're bringing me back to that. I also had the class with Steve Reifenberg and I haven't thought about the elephant rider metaphor in a while, but that's a good one. I uh, hope if he's listening, I got that right. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be hearing about it if I know. you got it right. No, it sounds right. I, yeah, it's, it's reaching people where they are, but then it, it's also trying to, I mean, it is trying to push them in a particular direction. It's trying to change where they are too. Um, I think about, and this is from kind of the peace studies angle, Barbara Deming uh, has, a, has, a, has a great kind of framework around the two hands approach. Um, so one hand, if you're, if you're in conflict with someone, uh, one hand is, is pushing them in the direction that, that you want, saying, I, I disagree with you know, what you're thinking, how you're treating people. I want you to move in this direction um, because at this point the power is 
perhaps with you, but then the other hand rests on their shoulder, assuring them that you're, you, you believe they can change because you respect them as a, as a human being. Uh, and I think that that's quite a good metaphor to try to think of it at, at various times, one might be pushing <laughs> more than the other is reassuring and one might be reassuring more than, than the other is pushing, but, uh, it, you have to have, you have to have both in, in some way. Um, it's interesting cause it gets into these, you know, contemporary, uh, well, sorry, contemporary would definitely be the wrong descriptor, but, uh, things we're seeing covered now that have been covered for a while about the role of anger and civility in, in, in politics and in, in public discourse. Uh, and I think there is a camp that says that, um, it should be civil public discourse constantly. Um, but I, but I think anger has a huge justification as well. I think anger gets certain people to the table, um, or gets certain people involved in a way that they might not otherwise have been. Uh, certainly when we were doing the work, uh, uh, with the four to five movement, people weren't, I mean, people weren't happy go lucky about it. It was, it, there was, there was joy in, in pushing for the things we were pushing for, but people were also very angry. Uh, in fact, uh, when at the end of my sophomore year, the university, uh, strategically, I think made a mistake. They, they published a public statement about the efforts, uh, and about LGBTQ inclusion with about a week left of school. Now, usually the, the mindset is that you're going to wait until exams are happening or you're going to wait till the observer stops publishing, but they published a week before. And we, uh, first of all, the public statement in and of itself was wholly insufficient. Um, people read through it, uh, like it was an invisible sheet. I mean, there was no, all the promises were very hollow or it was just a, a reiteration of things that they thought they were already doing. And people were really furious that people thought, well, for all of the effort that we had been making, uh, for all of the, the, the push that we had been having, it seemed dismissive. Um, and so we had a very impromptu rally at, uh, at Stonehenge, which is this fountain, uh, world, well, it's a world war II memorial fountain on campus. It's, uh, but nicknamed Stonehenge because of how it looks. Uh, and we had a rally and we, we opened it up for everybody to, to, to speak their mind. And people were furious and people expressed that anger and people expressed the feeling of not being heard or not being respected by the administration. We were able to make sure that that was the front page of the observer the next day. And so the administration saw, well, in response to what we thought or what they thought was a good public statement, this was the reaction. And it was anger. It was anger. And then we went to the grotto and lit candles because we're Notre Dame students and that's meaningful to us. And that's a good source of collective energy. Um, so that's not saying that there's not a place for anger. It's then a question of how it's, how it's directed and, 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 uh, wh what, uh, what sort of voices are being, uh, voiced, uh, in, in that anger. I absolutely love that sentiment and to talk about Steve again, and I don't want to get this wrong on the pod, but I think it's a keto. Are you familiar with a keto? I don't think I am. So it's a form of martial arts, I'm okay. pretty certain. And Steve always told me about this. He said, when you're thinking about change, I want you to think about Aikido. And Aikido is a martial art where there isn't a takedown, per se. There isn't a, I pin you to the ground and it's over. What it's about is it's about whatever blow you take, you roll with 
the other individual. So if I hit you, we roll together mm. as opposed to punch, you move back and there's a separation. And it's a great, it's all about kind of the transfer of energy and how that even when you're in conflict, you have a symbiosis with the other partner and you're always rolling with them, whether that's backwards, forwards, yeah. left or right. And I thought that was fascinating it because is. when we typically think about the other side, we think about a separation, we think about a disconnect. And I think what Steve is very astute to say was, think about a symbiosis, think about a, a connection. And you're constantly moving with that person to be able to get where you want to go. And it doesn't always mean you're going to be going forward. Mm. And it's not about winning or losing, but it, it's really about understanding that energy. And I think that Grotto example is a great idea of how there was a, a kind of transfer sure. of that anger into something that is, let's say, more positive. Because I think anger can some be... Some, can be good but at least sets the foundation for a, for a discussion hmm. uh, with the other side i think i remember when we were uh thinking about metaphors early on we did talk about how the blue flame the blue part of part of the flame uh is is the hottest part uh that it's that core uh uh part of the flame or the anger that has to be controlled uh and in organizing literature you read some someone like Saul Alinsky, uh, that that's essential is that is that you have to know how to harness that anger, maintain it, stoke it uh, in some ways, but but keep it that kind of core blue blue flame. I like the Aikido metaphor. I think I think none of this is incompatible with recognizing too that that I mean these are we are inherently talking about power struggles, uh, and this is something that is obviously very evident in any sort of political economy research. Um, but we are we are talking about power struggles. Um, but there are different kinds of power. There is power over and subordination, and then there's power with the ability to collectively organize for uh, the common good. Uh, and so we can't deny the influence that power has in these types of situations. But that's why also all of these contexts, in many ways, are are different. Depends on you know Notre Dame. Uh, is not necessarily like a, a state school where the chancellor and the board of trustees it perhaps might be more accept, uh, accessible. It's, it's right. different in that respect, but at right. the same time, it has a stated set of values that are uh, that are universal, small c Catholic, that perhaps a state school uh, might not. Um, and so there are different contexts for where these power dynamics lie, especially right. in the especially in the context of of university type organizing. Right. I've just I've just Googled Aikido and I, I thought you'd enjoy this. So it's Japanese martial art, and I love this because I think this goes to uh, your two hand analogy. Um, it was the it was it was created as an art that practitioners could use to defend themselves while also protecting their attacker from injury, hmm. which I think is such an interesting way to describe exactly what we were talking about you're not coming the to the table to say you're wrong you're coming to the table because you have empathy and you care about where the other side is going to end up yeah and if you if you start with that it kind of completely reframes this whole disagreement sure i like to, i like to think about it as as sort of understanding and taking people at their best in order to confront their worst uh and Love so that. i you know acknowledging certain common aspects um before before pushing and before but recognizing that pushing might be necessary and and 
forcing in some way or the other that's going to make someone and both people uncomfortable is necessary, um, but but not impossible. So I'm interested, uh, and then I, I do want to move on to the other area of conflict in your life in, in the sports realm, which is fencing. Um, but you're sure you're, you're a boy from Ohio. You, do you grow up thinking about these things, thinking about change? thinking about persuasion, thinking about conflict? Or was there a moment where you were like, I'm really fascinated by this? I think I, I think perhaps the conflict piece came after the justice piece. Um, for some reason, so I was never allowed to watch R-rated movies when, with my, my parents. So independent, but you know, when I was growing up, I thought overprotective <laughs> too. And I was, I was never allowed to watch R-rated movies except if they had if they were like historical in basis, which meant that I ended up watching a lot of movies about genocide. I ended up watching Schindler's List at a very young age, uh, Last King of Scotland, Hotel Rwanda. And, and I did start reading and doing my own research at quite a young age, I mean, in grade school, uh, about genocide. And I think what struck me was the absolute nadir of humanity that it represented. Uh, and that always stuck with me, along with sort of the fact that whenever I would take trips with my parents, we would go to these Holocaust memorial museums um, and read. And I know that some of this comes out of the fact that m my dad was very interested in, in philosophy and theology uh, and uh, has kind of a liberation theology perspective, um, but had also studied genocide and I also studied how Germany uh, has come to cope and think about uh, the Holocaust so that piece I think came first uh, and a focus on othering and a focus on the political processes that were in place that facilitated genocide uh, then I moved into kind of the realm that understood a conflict dynamic uh, and and how that fits into kind of some of these broader conversations about um, about justice that justice is not granted it is it is something that 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 must be conflictual inherently but that's not a bad thing uh, it's not a bad it's rec it's it's cognizant of the, the the power dynamics at play and I think we're using we're uh, for you know academia generally we're using quite uh, filtered and and um, sterile language but uh, obviously these are these are issues fundamental to life and death for for some people um, but the power dynamic is still there the the necessarily conflict for justice will still be there um, and and I think that's kind of how the transition in my own interest went is conflict always in service of eventually achieving justice it's a great question. No, I don't think so. Um, there's a difference between constructive conflict and deconstructive conflict, for sure. Um, and conflict, if it's escalated, can be done strategically to a point where you can actually resolve it. It might be, it might seem intractable without any sort of um, particular escalation or de-escalation. Uh, but you don't want to go too much because it could be unconstructive. It could be that people go into bunker mentality. Um, again, just using the, the four to five movement as the kind of case study that I know and experience. Mm. Uh, 
obviously the conflict takes place on a university campus, the last thing we would want is for the university to have some sort of bunker mentality and wait students out. I mean, this, they, they have the advantage in that uh, they write the rules and they can wait students out. Students have a, a life of four years. And could you just explain the bunker mentality? The bunker mentality, we're just going to wait it out. We're going we're gonna to sit in the bunker, s- sit in the bunker, consolidate whatever power we have and let the inherent weaknesses of, of our opponents take them down. In this case, uh, the fact that students graduate or students get burned out or students actually shouldn't be necessarily fighting their administration on trying to be an inclusive environment. Um, I think there's value to that, but students are, you know, there for other reasons too. Fascinating start to the conversation. Uh, I'd like to move to fencing, sure. um, because I, 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 I'll be honest, I don't, I don't know anything about fencing. Um, and, and there's a great friend of mine, Sam McGinty, and, and his girlfriend, lovely uh, young lady called Regina, is currently on the fencing team in Notre Dame. And um, I think you were the first fencer I ever met, period, given that we met on the first day. I hope it's a good impression. <laughs> Very good impression. And um, I, I'd, I'd remember, fe- you know, fencing from, of course, Parent Trap. Um, yeah, of course. And- or Zorro. Many people from uh, think about Zorro. It, it, trying to it, think of all of all the the movies that people have referenced parent trap zorro and and then star wars are probably the top most consistent ones got it i love it uh, any lightsaber analogies yeah. you can get to but first things first um talk to me about your journey into fencing mm. uh how the hell does that happen uh most guys are playing football right and then i'd like to talk what's what is what is fencing what can fencing teach those who know it and don't uh, about life at large yeah. Two questions then. Sure. Well, so fencing, I, when I, I, I'm going to talk about my coach because he, he was such a big influence for me, but also his journey is relevant to, to how, I, how I got started, obviously. He, he came over from the Soviet Union and landed in Kansas City and started a, a team there. And within a few years, the entire national team was from his club in the U.S. Uh, he then got the coaching offer at Ohio State, came to Columbus and wanted a club similar to what he had in Kansas City. So he did recruiting events at, uh, at different summer camps, at different schools, uh, and I stumbled upon one, and I, I kind of loved it. I thought this was neat. We were using these foam swords called Wacky Whackers. Uh, the footwork was, was interesting enough at the time, although most fundamental that I only came to appreciate later. And I was in grade school, so I was trying to do all of these different sports. I was trying to do soccer, football, as I get chastised here, to, to say correctly. Um, <laughs> Don't worry, you're in good hands. I'm in good, I'm in good this hands. Is, this is an English podcast <laughs> in London, you're fine. The Americans uh, beat, beat the English team recently, and so I feel like maybe we have a, a week uh, or two weeks where we only call it soccer. <laughs> um, but uh, so I was doing soccer, I was doing baseball, I was doing basketball. And I picked up fencing and I was like, well, this is pretty fun. It's a year round sport though. Um, whereas the other ones have seasons. And so when I got into high school, I had just started to go to very local competitions for fencing and I did pretty well. I was like, well, okay, this is interesting enough. You were winning. I, I wasn't winning. I was meddling, but like that was pretty good. Um, my, my grade school team, bless our hearts. Uh, <laughs> we were not very good at all of the different sports from the baseball we went we played baseball from fourth grade to eighth grade it was the same group of guys and we won one game that entire time 
Wow. It was in eighth grade. We were very perseverant. I mean, but but we won one game. But I was doing well in fencing, so I was like, well, maybe I should maybe I should try try this a little bit. So I decided to stick with it in high school, uh, and 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 really loved it, and started to to make it my sport, and was able to travel um, across the U.S. to do it. Uh, did a few international competitions at the time, which was great, uh, and then joined the team team at Notre Dame, which is uh, we won my freshman year. Wow, they're an incredible team, incredible set of coaches. Uh, they've just won two in a row. They they lost this year, but they won two in a row before that, almost right. three. And no one no one's done a three peat, right? No one's done a three peat. They were so close, so close. Um, but fencing is is an incredible sport. I mean, it is an individual sport. At the end of the day, it's you and your your opponent uh your coach can be there but so often you're drowning them out uh so often you know what they're going to say before they say it you know what you need to do um and it really forces you to focus on on the moment and the present um and you have to go touch by touch the moment you start thinking well there's a break at eight so all i got to do is get to eight and then after that it's less than halfway to 15 which is the final then i'll win the moment you start thinking that you've lost you have to think touch by touch which also means you have to forget about the last touch um that you might have lost that said you build patterns and so you react to what your opponent is doing you set up sequences um you get to know what their ticks are and you have to learn very quickly to see well if i faint here they're gonna go here uh if I faint here, they don't budge at all because they're not even recognizing my faint. And so I'm, you know, taking that off the table. You learn within the first couple touches what you can do. Uh, it's often called physical chess, and in some ways it is. I was never a very good chess player, but I like physical fencing as, as kind of that, that physical element That's awesome. of strategic thinking. Um, it's mental. It's physical. It's probably mostly uh, mental because you can't get down on yourself and you have to take it one touch at a time. That said, my coach also took a lot of lessons from the American context for sport, if I want to call it that. We were talking before this podcast about uh, sports in the US, um, but in the Ohio State fencing gym, there is this enormous blown up speech by Vince Lombardi, uh, American football coach, called What It Takes to Be Number One. and the first line is winning is not a sometimes thing. It's an all the times thing. It's a habit. And unfortunately, so is losing. And that was the mentality that, you know, my coach wanted to instill in everybody. But at the end of that speech, uh, he talks about the, the grind, the desire for hard work, the desire for pushing yourself, uh, and really writes that, uh, at the end of the day, the moment that people hold dear is when they're lying on the field of battle, metaphorical field of battle, uh, exhausted, but victorious. And the way coach translated that was to say, you never necessarily lose to a better fencer than you, uh, or to, or to, or to a particular fencer, but you might beat yourself. You might reinforce certain habits, um, or you didn't do enough on the, you know, footwork line in front of the mirror, or you didn't do enough with the, the weights to kind of prep movement back and forth. Uh, and, and so there was a discipline element there that I really appreciated and loved. Um, that's incredible. Did you ever think you were going to win a national championship? I mean, be honest. I mean, there's, 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 there's being good at a sport. Then there's going to college for it. There's going to college for it 
at D1 level, there's making NCAAs, and then there's winning the damn thing. Yeah. Right? The fencing team must be one of Notre Dame's most winningest teams. I think, I if think, not the, right? I think in terms of championships, it's second behind football. Which is fascinating. Which is fascinating. And most people don't know. Uh, Given that you are quite literally, and I, I say this provocatively, in the shadow, right, of the stadium. Right. Yeah. So so the move to college was interesting because fencing in the U.S. and, and generally is, is, is an individual sport. So you compete locally, you compete nationally, you compete internationally for yourself. I mean, you're getting points uh, uh, based on your own results. Collegiate team is... Is to- it is a team sport. You obviously, it's not like it's a free for all and five people fence five people at once. You're fencing individually, um, but uh, you know everything that you win collectively is 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 the. It's more like the Davis Cup in tennis, right? Exactly, exactly, uh, and that creates, I think, an incredible sense of solidarity because you truly are only as strong as your weakest link, and so everybody is trying to bring everybody up. I was so lucky because my freshman year, we had this incredible group of seniors. I was really lucky, and this goes to back to PSA too. I, I, it, I lucked out in so many ways to have these people who had been through Notre Dame for three years, had been through certain grinds for three years, to have their experience, to have their expertise, and to have their drive implanted on, onto me uh, and the rest of the team. Uh, and these fencers were great, and they had been so close to a national championship a few times, and they wanted it, and they wanted it so badly, uh, and they were good at pushing, and they were good at pushing in a way that wasn't going to make people burn out, um, because I think that's another problem that people have. Uh, it wasn't that they were just pushing us; it was that they were calling us to this uh, collective experience of winning a national championship, and that it was the teams. What's great about fencing? Uh, there's a lot of great things about fencing, but what's great about fencing collegiately is that it's a co-ed team. Uh, it's a combined national championship. So it's not individual men, wow. individual women's. It's a combined national championship. Uh, and everyone is, is, is on the team. Whether you were a walk-on or whether you were a recruit, you're on the team and you fence for the team and you're at the competitions. Even if you're not fencing, you're, you know, you're cheering on. Uh, and at no point in time did I or... You know, I think anyone else feel like they were not of the uh, the high caliber nature of the team. Um, so we had these incredible seniors who really pushed us along with alongside and and with the coaches. And it was just it, it was a mentality. Everything lined up the the talent, the hard work, uh, and 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 this drive and mentality really pushed it to this national championship in 2011. And I think you've seen that with this most recent set of teams uh they i've every time every summer i go back to well summer for oxford is like the beginning of october for uh for <laughs> for U, u.s schools but every time i'm back I, I go back and i visit the team and i see how they're doing and talk to the coaches and there is just a a, a drive that is so exciting that they're also excited about and that they're joyous about uh in the gym and they're working hard because they want to be there and they want to put their best foot forward and 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 uh, put their best effort out there, uh, and that's and that's why they're doing so well. Uh, it it is unfortunate that they didn't win this past year, but two in a row is, I mean, it's incredibly incredible. impressive. How? What did these seniors do? Did they do anything specific? I mean, I'm I'm interested. Um, 
like what how did they how did they curate that culture yeah there were a lot of different leadership styles on the team um i can think of one person who <laughs> their their approach wasn't the i you know it was it was more like that i'm not going to be mad i'm going to be disappointed and you're going to be disappointed in your in yourself too and uh that resonated as, as someone with you know who grew up catholic has like an enormous amount of catholic guilt that like right. helps quite a bit especially for a lot of people on the team that was one uh there was one who just brought the joy to whether she was feeling shit and whether she had a bad day she was always joyous at practice and she never let people get like too down on themselves um so that kind of worked together in a really nice way um and then there was another who was sort of um technocratic in a way he he was very focused on footwork he was focused on precision uh and if you did a good job he would tell you and if you didn't he would tell you how to improve um and he'd work with you until you did it and so it was kind of these combination almost like split amongst different personalities that really helped um because it also allowed people to um appeal i mean there's obviously different personalities on the team and there's different personalities amongst the freshmen uh and it allowed sort of people to appeal to those different personalities without one particular one being ostracized. Um, and it was just an inclusive team where, where these groups that I have been in merge is that when we were doing the four to five movement campaign, I, I immediately thought we need to enlist the help of, of student athletes, um, because student athletes are an enormous voice on campus from enormous from the football team, uh, uh, arguably the greatest in any way, the greatest amongst students. And the platform they Hands have down. is amazing. Um, and so we did this campaign called Athlete Ally uh, that then the athletic department picked up in later years, which has been great. But we had all of these student athletes who wanted to be in with their representative teams uh, wear our campaign shirt, take a photo of them looking, you know, either happy or serious, whichever they had all decided, uh, and put it out there that, that, that we're trying to make sport a more inclusive place. Uh, and the fencing team was obviously the first one I went to and they were great. I mean, everybody like wanted to be a part of it. They had so much fun with it. They were always supportive later on when I would, when I would, you know, at practice, I would, they, people would ask like, what's going on with the campaign? Are there other ways we can help? Uh, and so it was kind of that collective experience that everybody was very excited about. And I love that you were the, the bridge between the two. Yeah. Right. You talk about. You know, Reed Hoffman, uh, Ray Dalio talk about this idea of your circle of competence. And I, and I love to think about that from a relational network standpoint of Definitely. if you do want to create virality or you do want to create some level of consensus, yeah. how can you bring in different groups and, and create that space with the Venn diagram? Definitely. Crosses back to front. I, and I, and I, I'll say I think I, that's in some way, ways where I do thrive is being able to connect certain groups and, and, and people. Um, there were student athletes who, after they did our campaign, came to PSA meetings. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't work the other way around. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't have any PSA people go into the, the lacrosse team or whatnot. But, um, but to yeah, be able to create those networks. Because, and maybe this goes back to identity, uh, there are all of these different pieces and aspects. Um, I mean, I wasn't just a fencer at Notre Dame. In fact, I wouldn't necessarily say that's a primary identity. I wasn't just part of Progressive Student Alliance. I wouldn't say that was necessarily a primary identity. Um, but each of those combined to, to how I see the world. Um, I am competitive and individually competitive, 
but it's all the better with a team and it's all the better with a team that has a you know consistent set of values uh that that has a you know has the right strategy has the right tactics uh and 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 pushes in a way that that feel consistent with your values uh and so these different pieces of of me kind of were expressed in all of these different groups so Alex, after, after that short break, um, I did just want to bring up probably the most exciting uh, American athlete of the last at least four days, uh, Corey Goff, mm-hmm. who famously beat Venus Williams at the age of 15 years old Thanks, and has man. now yeah. gone on to not only win her second match, but also last night saved two match points against a top 50 player at the age of 15 and go on into the quarterfinals of Wimbledon. And what I love about your narrative and fencing that I find so fascinating is tennis is, I've heard tennis described as a loser's game. I've also heard golf described in the same way. What I mean by loser's game, and this is how people have described it, is that oftentimes being good at the sport is not so much about always winning the point. It's actually about the avoidance of errors. Mm -hmm. And if you look at... um, um, if you look at tennis, one of the stats that they always mark the players on is, was that a, a purposeful error, right? Was that, a, you know, an error that I committed personally? Right. Like it was a, it was a double four. Right. Right. And if you watch Corey last night, she saves two match points, never by winning a point, but by her opponent losing the point. Yeah. And then she wins the match by her opponent hitting a lob long. Definitely. Fencing. Does that? luxury and I will call it a luxury does that same luxury exist I think it does um you know I think you you I mean you yeah it makes sense you minimize your mistakes and you try to force errors out of your yeah no unforced errors that's that's the time no unforced errors uh I think it I think it does make sense I mean I think partly the context is is maybe we go back to this partly the context is the power dynamic uh in some ways Corey Goff lower on the on the on the spectrum of power perhaps uh given given her age given her experience uh knows that she can't afford to to make any of these mistakes um it it primes you it 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 sort of grinds you in a way that that makes you more polished and i think is really important um which is probably also why making mistakes early on is quite important um but i think fencing is is similar you are both reacting and inducing a reaction from your opponent. Uh, and so while you're trying to steal time, uh, you're trying to maybe be faster in the middle, uh, you're also trying to get them off their rhythm a little bit. They might, it might take a lot to force them off their rhythm if they're very good, if they have a very strong offense. Um, but if you have a strong defense, you can perhaps wait it out. You can perhaps make them have that last second decision to to prepare their arm just a little bit too much and then you go in for the counterattack or they prepare their arm a little bit too much and you take distance uh, and make them miss you. And so you are trying to force mistakes. So I think there is probably some similarity there. Um, if we get, if we bring it back to the, uh, to the, to uh, the four to five movement, um, being students, we were in a very tough position. I mean, we were protected in a sense from errors through kind of academic freedom and just the fact that we were trying new things and didn't know what was going to work and tried to trust our gut and then double down on things that did work. Um, but in some ways we kind of knew we had to force errors out of, out of, uh, 
out of the administration, not to make them sound too oppositional, but uh, at least how we were thinking about it at the time. Uh, and so going back to the, the thing about the public statement, I think that was an unforced uh, or a forced error um, of getting them to release a statement early enough that we had time to then respond and, and, and capitalize on uh, to make the most of that week um, and, and push the conversation in a direction that then meant the decision on the Gay Straight Alliance rather than being denied was deferred until the fall so that we had more time to organize around. Um, so I, I, I think that's uh, generally a, 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 a very strategic way of thinking as well. Yeah, and, I, and I, I must say, I think, yes, I don't want to take anything away from Corey. Well, in fact, anybody that's forcing errors from their opponent, because I think that's a difficult thing to do, um, especially at the highest levels of the game. I think it is a very difficult thing to, to force errors. Especially when you've got two match points and you're the senior player. But I just thought that was one of the most amazing pieces of sport I've ever seen. Yeah. And all else being equal, if, if, I mean, if you have two opponents who are, who are of the highest caliber, it's, it's going to be a waiting game of, of, you know, and and in some cases this might be where physical fitness actually comes in of like, who's going to tire first, who's going to mentally drop off for a split second. Right. Um, when, when they're especially at such a high caliber. So I'd, I'd like to now move on to legitimacy. Um, th- this is something that I think is on the minds of a lot of young people today. I think people everywhere. Uh, legitimacy. Where do you derive your delic- de- uh, legitimacy from? And do you derive it from your identity? Do you derive it from your achievements? You, to me, are one of the most accomplished people I've met, period. Uh, and I, would, I know you would never want me saying that, let alone a noted AIM student. And as I hear your narrative, it, it's never about kind of what you've achieved. But I do want to bring up some things because you're too humble. Uh, student body president, national champion, Truman Scholar, and Rhodes Scholar. Um, I think many people would be happy <laughs> with one of those things. You happen to have all four, which I think is amazing. And I love the fact that you don't lead with it. But if you wouldn't mind, I would like to, to kind of talk about those moments when did did they give you a sense of legitimacy um you've mentioned in some of your notes to me in an email prior to this conversation about the road scholarship being a really legitimizing moment about the path you were on so maybe if you could just talk about your path from winning the national championship to becoming student body president to applying for truman to applying for Rhodes, winning both when did it really sink into you that like shit i can do this like i can really do this yeah I think the Truman was was a big one for me, and actually, in some ways, a bit bigger than than the Rhodes. Um, so, the Truman Scholarship is a is a scholarship focused on public service in the U.S. and uh, it gets people from from all fifty states kind of into a class uh, with a commitment to public service. And you know, I've always I've always been at school. Um, uh, I've never necessarily been drawn to academia from a professional sense but I'd always been good at school. Um, but like, like we talked about before, I wanted my learning to be much more experiential in college. And, uh, and ultimately student body president is another example of that. Um, I mean, my senior year in some ways was great. Uh, I, I had minimal classes. Uh, I had a lot of essay classes, so could do those sort of when I found time, but I treated student government like a full-time job. And student government's one of those things that I was very skeptical of. Uh, when I got in because I didn't think it could really do anything. 
if you actually do any sort of power analysis on campus, student government doesn't ha it doesn't hold any levers, um, but it can, and I and I think that's what turned me to it was saying, well, we had this energy around kind of inclusion and uh, and and solidarity uh, and focusing on issues that people had in a smaller sense. Let's make it the platform. Let's make it kind of the 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 focus of an already legitimized institution like student government. Uh, and so I worked with uh, Nancy, who was my vice president, and Juan Rangel, who was my uh, chief of staff, and and we ran we ran a campaign kind of on this similar platform and one and and so I was like, well, we, we, we should treat it like a full time job because we have this opportunity to be advocates for students, um, and we have this opportunity to bring narratives into uh, a more legitimate space where they weren't already. Uh, and so that was a great uh, learning environment for me. I won the Truman Scholarship having applied like a lot of students apply, just thinking, well, I might as, you know, I might as well. It, Throw your hands around. Yeah, yeah, you think, think it's, it's, it's there, you might as well apply. Uh, knowing it's a competitive national competition, thinking, no way in hell am I getting it. I actually left my Truman interview and my dad picked me up from the interview uh, in Cincinnati and I got in the car and I was like, I don't want to talk about it. I thought, I, I think I, I was so nervous. I was so, I, I actually said something that I then had to walk back in the interview um, because I was spouting bullshit and, 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 and said something that was outside of my area of knowledge and tried to defend it in a way that was uh, indefensible. And then I had to walk it back. So I, I left this interview like, oh my gosh, I, there's no way. Um, and then at a university uh, luncheon, they announced that I got it. And this was the first I was hearing about it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is uh, incredible. And it became such a great community for me. I mean, it's all of these people who really are devoted to public service um, and, and, you know, not going down careers that might be more financially lucrative, um, but who are really committed to a set of particular values. Some people were interested in in sort of service more broadly in service through either electoral politics or institutional uh, career service. Uh, or some people were thinking about particular issues like education or the environment. Uh, and so it was so wonderful to be around this, this group of people. And that's when I think I started to feel like the path that I was on didn't necessarily need to be a path of a side thing a side thing that, you know, I experienced in college and then I would try to figure out uh, how to incorporate it into my life, but to actually make it part of my um, professional life uh, and, and a life uh, after grad school. And Truman was kind of the first sort of moment of legitimizing in my mind that, well, not only do people think that this is important work, um, but it's, it's something that I can do uh, and and work with other people on and and kind of make part of my part of my career. Uh, the Rhodes was a whole other long shot. Now Notre Dame had not had a Rhodes for I think maybe sixteen or eighteen years, but it's a point of institutional pride. You know they want they want to be able to promote students who who do things. This is the, I mean, aside from you know, a Nobel laureate, to me this is the gold medal. From at least from an undergraduate academic standpoint, for an institution, yeah, is that fair or is that a kind it, of misconception? I, I think it's totally viewed that way, and I think you know you have institutions like Harvard, Yale, um, Columbia, 
others who they 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 have a lot of Rhodes scholars, um, and almost every year, you know, they have they have a lot of Rhodes scholars, and I think uh, some of it from Notre Dame's end is well, we're a good Midwest institution is full of Midwest. Let's have one too, people. Uh, <laughs> let's let's try. You know, we should we should be having them as well. Um, in terms of legitimizing, I think I think in some ways uh, the institution wants to claim it as a piece of you know legitimacy. Or uh, an- another one that Notre Dame has lots of are um, uh, Peace Corps volunteers, right? Right? Or or Fulbright scholars. We have a number of Fulbright scholars every year. Uh, and so again, I applied to this thinking, well, it's it's there. There can't go any worse than the Truman Institute, right? <laughs> go any worse than the Truman Institute. <laughs> a lot of a lot of professors were were wanting me to. And I applied my senior year, uh, and I interviewed, and I didn't get it. Uh, and I remember—I mean, it's a crazy process—but they, you do the interview, and you hang around just in case it was a callback interview. And so you're hanging around with all the people you're interviewing with and against. And, and there are multiple rounds, right? So I just want to stop you. There used to be. There used, there to, be. used okay. to be. Okay. Right. Now, 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 there's just one interview, just one nationally. If you, but there, there's a huge cut to get to the interview. And what do you submit um, to, to the interview? Because you just kind of give us an insight and. What does it mean if a ton of professors are telling you to do it? I'm sure they're writing letters of recommendation. You're submitting work. Yeah, they're they're writing me letters of recommendation. You have to get eight um, letters of recommendation. I think four have to be academic. So Steve Reifenberg, we mentioned, uh, was one of your letters of recommendation. Was one of my letters of recommendation. That's awesome. Um, poor guy has had to write me a lot of re- letters of recommendation. <laughs> Thank you, to Steve. Thanks, Steve. Um, also, hashtag uh, happy 60th birthday, Steve. We'll do a shout out there. Is his birthday today? I think it's the 12th, maybe. We're, we're coming up on it. Awesome. Um, but anyway, they write letters of recommendation. Uh, you put together a personal statement, no more than a thousand words. So you have to tell your story it, 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 or is what you want to convey in a thousand words. And then honestly, the letters of recommendation do most of the work. Um, so I interviewed the first time. The, the woman came in to, to announce the winners. And the whole time she was sort of giving this speech before she announced the two winners, she was looking right at me. And I thought, oh boy, here we go. Wow. And then she named the two people on either side of me. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, man. And they were nice enough not to like high five over my head or anything. Um, but metaphorically, they were. Set the scene. Where are you at this point? We're in Indianapolis in a boardroom of a law firm. And everybody's, you know, dressed up in suits. You go in for your 20-minute interview, and then you come back. Uh, and to ease the stress, I mean, there was palpable tension and stress in the room. Uh, some people would watch comedy. We played uh, card games together. Uh, how many How many people is 13. This? 13. From all over the globe? From, from, from the particular states that are in that district. So it was, uh, I think that year it was Ohio and Indiana were in the same district. Uh, so I was in that district. Uh, but I didn't win. And that was okay. I mean, I, it was a huge blow. It felt like a disappointment and it felt like a, a honestly, it felt like I had let down a lot of people um, because there was so much built up, such well-meaning uh, build up. Um, people all across campus wanted to help me prep for this interview. All professors were wishing me like, you know, huge luck and, and whatnot. And I think people were very excited. Um, and so not getting it did feel like I, had let them down. I don't think that was necessarily right. I don't think they 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 were disappointed in me, um, but it nonetheless felt that way. So I graduated and um, through Truman was able to work uh, in the U.S. government. So I was working at Health and Human Services, 
in an office that I loved with, with people that I really loved, um, knew that I still wanted to go to grad school in some capacity. And so reapplied to the roads. Uh, again, figuring at this point, uh, might as well reapply. I don't think the interview went terribly the way I thought it did with Truman. Thought, thought the record, uh, thought the panelists liked me enough. Um, and thought I had a better understanding of where I wanted my academic trajectory to go. My master's ended up being in comparative social policy and essentially what I was doing at HHS was social policy analysis. Uh, and I loved it because I was, I was getting my, my fingers on any sort of, uh, all sorts of different issues, youth homelessness, youth, youth violence prevention, community action agency and service integration, uh, Medicaid expansion, all sorts of different things. Uh, and, and it excited me because it was, it, was, it was actually feeling like there was policy work being done. Um, and so I felt like I had a better sense of the academic trajectory that I wanted. So I reapplied, uh, interviewed, uh, got invited to an interview again, uh, and luckily got it this time. Um, and it- Same boardroom? Sorry. Was it the same boardroom? It was the same boardroom, different people. So I was the only one to repeat. Um, wow. But uh, same boardroom, definitely had flashbacks. I think I wore the same tie. It's like a good luck tie. Um, and I, you know, the reaction was, I, I was, I was, I was so excited and I was so, uh, thrilled and, and kind of relieved at the same time. All of my recommenders were, you know, the same, uh, equal amounts of excitement and help the second time around. Um, and I guess when I say it, it was legitimizing, um, I don't think it should be, but I think that because I perhaps was unsure about what came next, uh, it felt like it was an opportunity to direct me uh, on a particular academic trajectory, uh, on a particular grad school trajectory, uh, and to give me the space to explore maybe professionally what I would be interested in doing. Uh, and it has been that. Uh, it's been a wonderful opportunity. I didn't think I would stay in Oxford for four years. I thought that uh, I was going to do a two-year master's and then probably go back to the States. Thought about doing law school. I'm glad I'm not doing law school. <laughs> Instead, I'm in a PhD program uh, in political science and researching race and poverty in the United States. And uh, I've had that space to explore uh, kind of the role and power of ideas and narratives, um, but also to just better understand what social policy looks like, both in the U.S. context and in a comparative context. Um, it's fascinating to see how actually inherently comparative some of the political de debates have been in the United States now, uh, and I think it's I think it's for the better. I think I think we uh, we can learn a lot from from what other countries do in particular areas. What changed? Between, I don't know if you've given this any thought, but what changed between not getting it and getting it? Well, practically, I didn't go to law school. Um, I think I was headed to law school, uh, unfortunately, in the way a lot of people are headed to law school or, or a lot of different uh, kind of grad paths, which is uh, they're not necessarily sure what else to do. And I think I was feeling that way with law school. I wasn't super excited about it. Um, so practically, I, I'm, I'm much more excited about where I am uh, academically and with respect to grad school. I like to think I haven't changed all that much. Uh, whenever I go back to the US and I, or I visit friends or friends come here to visit, 
it it is always a a nice compliment when they say I don't they don't think I've changed at all. Um, they don't mean it in, in you know declining to think that I I haven't progressed as a human being. Um, but uh, I think my relationships with people necessarily haven't changed um, because the the interactive elements between us are the are the same. Um, they know me. I hope as someone who has always been interested in a similar set of issues and and from particulars framework around around justice and uh I, I i like to think that that's what i'm applying here in, in right. grad school um but i've also made an incredible set of new friends uh who uh you know we've already had a couple weddings in our in our in our road wow. class which is exciting uh and and to sort of see people come together from all over the world um i really like to think that the best of the road scholarship is uh, this idea of kind of kinship in service, not not the belief that that there is a uh, necessarily a position of authority or power that is going to let you, you know, do whatever you want, but that your uh, ability to take some of the best minds, take some of the best networks, if we want to think utilitarian about it, uh, some of the best access and utilize it. Uh, to to work with people uh, on 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 issues of justice, I think that's the best. And there are so many people in my Rhodes class who kind of have that mentality, uh, which I really appreciate. Right, I um, I love this narrative because there was a there was a, I think a similar pursuit um, or achievement from a, a national championship winning heptathlete called Georgia Ellenwood that I was tracking last year, and um, she had done the NCAAs all four years at Wisconsin. She was a Wisconsin Badger. And I think she had come fourth her first year, third her second year, second her third year, and was going into the NCAAs as a senior, being like, I've got to win this damn thing. And um, she won. And in the interview afterwards, they said, Georgia, you are a national champion. You're the NCAA national champion. How does it feel? And, and she said... You know, if there's one thing I could change, it would to tell my freshman self to be patient and to know that it was going to happen. And I was like, wow. And and I think that to me connects back to this idea of living in the moment. Definitely. And point by point. Uh, I, that resonates a lot. And I and I I think in terms of the space for reflection that I've had in grad school, thanks to the roads probably one of the biggest skills that I have tried to work on uh, is patience. Uh, it's, it's inherent in doing a PhD, that's for sure. Uh, and, and the recognition that you will get there. It takes time. It takes time for ideas to, to flourish. It takes time for you to figure out how to articulate those ideas. Uh, it perhaps means making mistakes in order to minimize them later on. But all of that is a process and all of that requires a lot of patience. I'm interested in that. Um, I'm, I'm someone who pushes a lot of ideas, as I'm sure you are. And um, as, as it pertains to change, or for change of no aim, time often isn't on your side in the way that you might want it to be. So I'm interested. How do you, how do you teach yourself? Can you teach yourself to be more patient, especially think if you have the right idea that can create value for others? Like, how have you learned to be more patient? Because it's something I'm not very good at. Um, and it's something that I think is kind of indicative of being an entrepreneur. And I, I define entrepreneurship as 
the pursuit of a current, you know, of a goal without regard to current resources, as opposed to building a trillion dollar tech business. So I think everybody's actually in this pursuit. How do you teach yourself to be more patient? Oh man. And I don't know if I have, uh, I certainly haven't mastered it, but you're, you're, you're completely right. All of the, in, in all aspects of life, whether it's, whether it's startup mentality or startup life, entrepreneurship within academia or, or, or a desire to publish quickly, uh, there is this need for fast turnover. Um, and it doesn't allow ideas to marinate and it doesn't necessarily allow the best to rise to the top. There's a lot of noise that, that, that gets created. Um, and I think that the one thing that I have found to help <laughs> is to know what those goals or values are. Like you said, you're, it, it is goal oriented, but to also articulate that to other people, um, in a way that is almost accountable for you. Um, so whenever I have down moments in the PhD, which is quite often, right. uh, I'll text a few of my friends and Lord knows they are more articulate than I am in trying and in, in trying to encourage me to, to be patient and to think through, um, you know, the issues that I'm thinking through, but having that external accountability really does help. Um, because as going back to the beginning of our conversation as independent, as I think some of us like to think we are, we, we. I know I really rely on the insight and, and help and experience of, of friends, because even if they don't know perhaps the particular realm of the world you're operating in, or they don't know the particular issue areas you're operating in, they might know you better and they might know what works best for you. Um, and they might know when you need a break and when you don't, um, and they probably know what to say to, to, to get you in the right headspace. Right. So now you're at, Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, you're teaching a class on, on critical thinking that you says kicks off on Monday, right? Kicks off on Monday. This is the second year that I've done it. Um, and it's one of these Oxford summer courses where high schoolers from around the world come and uh, you know get to experience a month in Oxford uh, with, with teachers ranging from a DPhil or a PhD candidate to people who are full-time tenured professors in you know, biochemical engineering and they're right. doing all sorts of things. So why are you teaching this class? Why, why critical thinking and, and what are you hoping to achieve, you know, with this group of people? I, I'd love to know how you discerned and ended up with this. Yeah. I've always liked, I've never taught a full class or well, before last summer, I never taught a full kind of curriculum, but I had always loved teaching in some capacity, whether it was like facilitating classes whenever I'm back on campus at Notre Dame. Um, I've been doing some fencing coaching and I really enjoy that of being able to work with someone and see them develop uh, in, a, in, a, in a particular way. Uh, and so I thought this would be a really good opportunity to sort of test the waters a little bit. And critical thinking was very conscious because I almost thought about doing the politics and economics course. That would be a bit more up my actual uh, um, issue area alley. But I want to take a step back Perhaps some of it was selfish of thinking, I want to take a step back from this very uh, sort of narrow focus and say, part of the question is how, we, how do we actually question and how do we actually think through the issues that we're immersed in? Uh, I had a great friend who, who taught the class the year before and let me sit in on it. And what's great about having opinionated high schoolers is that they are always open to conversation and they're open to conversation about and no topic is too off limits for them and they'll usually bring it up 
uh, and I thought that the the class that I sat in on had they had a lot of fun um, and they were pretty open-hearted about it and so I thought well this could be a really cool opportunity so last year was the first summer and designed this syllabus around critical thinking pulling from a lot of other uh, syllabi and professors who who have sort of elements in theirs um, I pulled stuff from the heart's desire class that that we talked about earlier uh, some of the reflection pieces uh, and and set to it. Now it's a summer course, so they're not supposed to have homework. So it's supposed to be a bit more of a of a fun. I thought I saw a few assignments on. There the were service. a few assignments. Well, you can't. You know whether or not they were graded or whether or not the kids turned them in was another question. But uh, <laughs> um, but design this class and and try to leave it open ended. Try to think about okay, critical thinking is a process. Um, how do we then apply it to a number of different issues? And uh, I had some issue ideas that we would talk about. One of them being identity. Um, but the students brought in other interests. One of them was really interested in how to think through the um, refugee crisis and, and thinking through borders and uh, national states and boundaries. And that was something that I had not prepared for, but thought, well, hey, this is a great idea to, to bring in. Um, so left it kind of open-ended and adapted. That's amazing. And when, when, I, when I read some of your notes, and I, I will kind of read... Um, you know, from your notes here, critical thinking most often asks why and what, who is missing. And and I think that idea combined with this idea of what you choose to think about yeah. and the impact that has on your psyche yeah. is truly brilliant, especially in this digital age where this thing in front of us, i.e. the iPhone, can often dictate what it is that you're thinking about. That's right. And I'd read a great article about three or four months ago on Medium called how to make your iphone work for you hmm. and it was basically deactivating all uh banners and you know uh you know in-app notifications and all badges so your phone looks dead none of the apps are telling you that you have anything there bar critical apps like messenger and whatsapp or messages and what i loved about that was the premise premise uh, the premise preface for the article was actually the biggest poison of technology is that you could have great intentions for going to use the tool but there's some engineer somewhere else who's getting you to one stay on the sink for as long as possible because that's how they make money yeah but two is going to cloud your judgment with what they think you want to see right and what they think you want to see may appeal to your worst ambitions as opposed to what you went there to do right so my question to you is how do you take the frameworks you're talking about in the class and apply this to what Cal Newport will call Digital Minimalism, which is the book he wrote this year on how you can make these things work for you in the sense that they work for us, right? Two weeks ago, we had a Zoom call. Now we're in London, mm -hmm. independent of one another, doing this podcast. Yeah. Amazing, yeah, right? But I've definitely spent worse time on Facebook than invite you to a podcast, right? So how do you think about that? Critical thinking, as opposed to who's missing from this conversation, which isn't an easy question to think about right. when you're locked into the consumption, Right. Coupled with, what am I actually thinking about, and who who's really dictating that? Yeah, uh, I mean it's a it's a question so fundamental to to this type of technology. I mean, the one of the brilliant aspects of this type of technology is that that question of who's at the table um, got to be broader. That there was a broader set of voices and and people at the table. Uh, at the same time, it it drowns other voices out nonetheless some people can be louder some people who ultimately have more of a platform um because of whatever 
influencing type yeah. platform followers. Uh, they can use it in a particular way. Uh, and obviously it's the spread of truth and, and misinformation. Um, so how you digest that is so important. We did have a, a class on, on what the responsibility of news uh, uh, casters and, and reporters and journalists, what their responsibilities are, and then what the responsibilities of responsible citizenship who are engaging with this material are. Um, and so much of it has to do with what are the assumptions hidden in all of these different reports or what are the assumptions uh, that, that are not at face value. Uh, apparent because that's what critical thinking is it's it's about identifying those assumptions your own which ones you're coming to the table with but also the ones present in in sort of I framed it as the conventional wisdom uh, Galbraith's term uh, but the assumptions that are present in the conventional wisdom uh, that are going to be hidden because they're going to be spoken as truth um, and so picking apart those and then trying to engage with each one either accepting them rejecting them and then if you're rejecting them how are you rejecting them and and then what alternatives are you bringing to the table so guys welcome back we're here for a part two um apologies for the slightly louder background noise yeah uh, good energy it's amazing energy it's london pride we've, plus they're here for the podcast plus they're here for the podcast we've got a raging crowd out there waiting to see alex um, we, we've just had a couple hours, haven't we? It's been good. It's been good. Saw Sweat uh, uh, on, on, in the West End. Show about, uh, what was Reading, Pennsylvania. Reading, Pennsylvania. Right? And uh, sort of told the story about uh, a factory closure, uh, really from the perspective of, of the people who it impacts. And I thought they actually did a really good job of combining it with sort of a very uh, light touch on the headlines, the, the national kind of political headlines at the time. Yeah. Um, but the show wasn't. It wasn't about those partisan debates. I mean, it was about uh, the people, the people, and 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 frankly, was damning, uh, rightfully so, about about sort of the uh, lack of interest politicians have uh, on 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 sort of some of the real real impacts. Uh, it touched on a lot. It touched on poverty. It touched on inequality. Combined the two conversations, which I thought was very important. Right. Um, it talked about uh, race and and uh, and the intersection with class, and I thought did so in a really, really beautiful, beautiful way. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Um, for anyone listening at home who's thinking about uh, maybe going to a play, taking friends, parents, uh, this is Sweat by Lynn Nottage. Um, it did wonderful in New York in 2015, is now doing a limited run, I think, till the middle of July, and it's at the Gilgud Theatre in Leicester Square. Um, and I, I would highly recommend the stalls. I thought that was a great view. Um, but anyway, Alex, back to you. So I think when we last... Part one, I think we were just kind of finishing up on the class, uh, the value of critical thinking, what you're hoping to achieve uh, with these high school students. Yeah. Um, as you know, a great a friend, or I shouldn't say friend, but a great inspiration of mine is, is, is Shane Parrish from Farnham Street. I know I sent you his blog. That's right. Uh, really talking about the value of using mental models to help you navigate life. What types of frameworks are you hoping to give these students uh, over the next month? to help them navigate uh, academic decisions, professional decisions, personal decisions. I'm really interested in that. And then do you have any frameworks, mental models yeah. that you rely on in your day-to-day -day life that you've found to be pretty pretty powerful? Yeah, I don't know if I tried to impart one particular model, but one of the activities we did early on um, was I asked them, was there a time in which they had a figure of authority 
tell them something that just didn't sit right with them. Maybe it wasn't necessarily an order, but it was a, it was a statement of truth or, or what was perceived to be truth. Uh, but it didn't quite sit right. But maybe at the time they didn't know, they didn't have the right arguments. They, they didn't quite know how to express how they were feeling and what sort of situations those would be like. Um, because I, I think that's critical thinking. I think there's an element of seeing things as a, as a conventional wisdom. This is, uh, I think I used it before, but it's Galbraith's term to look at the ideas in a particular time that, uh, that are acceptable because they are both predictable and familiar. And the reason that conventional wisdoms change, whether it be about monetary policy in the United States or whether it be about uh, gay rights in the United States um, or whether it be within a particular academic discipline, is because the, the mounting evidence starts to weigh against the, uh, the, the conventional wisdom or the conventional wisdom cannot stretch enough to, to uh, encapsulate uh, or dismiss the particular evidence. And so I kind of framed it in that way of saying, okay, well, what are the conventional wisdoms of our time, either of a particular political party or a particular national setting or on a particular issue? And then how can we pick apart uh, the assumptions inherent in that? Uh, and then from there decide, okay, are you gonna, what do you, I mean, what do you think about it? Given your research, given your logic and analytical thinking, uh, will you argue against it? Will you try to nuance it a little bit rather than, you know, maybe it's a dichotomy. Maybe maybe the issue is set up as a dichotomy, and instead of saying yes or no, you're saying, well, to what extent does X factor influence it, and to what extent does Y factor influence it? Because it's not an either or, but it's a kind of to what extent type of question. Um, and so just trying to give them a little bit of a toolbox to say more readily, I'm going to ask the question why. I'm going to ask kind of who, who or what perspective is missing from the table, um, and, and to what extent are particular issues feeding into this. And I think having those tools creates legitimacy, right? Being able to look beyond uh, the fray, right? I like to use the analogy of think of yourself as a microscope and you've got a bunch of lenses that go from one to 10, right? And they help you see some bacteria really closely. And if you keep switching them on, you can look at a topic through multiple lenses. Yeah. And that's the kind of training of critical thinking and of mental models is it helps you identify those patterns, but gives you a framework from which to be successful in foreign situations. And I think success um, isn't necessarily, this is something Annie Duke talks about um, in Thinking and Bets, isn't necessarily the decision. So like the impact of the decision, the outcome of the decision, it's more the framework. Yeah. Because you can't guarantee the result, right? And she gives this great example of resulting in the Super Bowl between the Patriots and the Seahawks where, you know, Bill Belichick could have run Marshall Lynch up the middle. They decided to go for the pass. And I think, you know, that the Seahawks intercepted on the one-yard line and they, you know, they lost the game. But if you looked at the odds, that was the right play to go sure. for. Yeah. But everybody judged his decision-making quality on the outcome right. as opposed to the framework. Oh, I think that's a great, great way to uh, to think about it. Yeah, totally. I mean, you want that process there. And it might necessarily be adapted given other information you come across. Um, certainly, just as there's no perfect market, there's also no perfect marketplace of ideas or frameworks. And so if you're going to be put in a situation where, um, you know, of values, a, set of, a particular set of values that you weren't expecting come into conflict, uh, maybe you have to adapt whatever your model is to, to try to make sense of it. Let's move on to ideas. We briefly touched on this earlier, but I know you've been chomping at the bit to talk about uh, this winner-takes-all 
yeah. kind of hypothesis right. that you've been championing. Um, and, and this was really in the response to my question, which is, what does Alex think about that nobody else does? And your response was, actually, I think there are very, 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 very few ideas that are truly original. Help the audience and me understand how you arrived at that kind Definitely. of understanding. I think when I when I graduated from Notre Dame, I I mean I I, I was lucky. I I had the Truman Scholarship, and I knew that public service was an area that I wanted to be in. But I also saw a lot of my friends go through this process that I, I don't think I quite understood, and it was the preparation for consultancy interviews. Um, and and it felt like the same process. People were going through the same same issue. Um, and then they were interviewing at these consultancies, and it struck me uh, how much power these these types of uh, consultancies or or or, um, or banks and some other uh, universities have in terms of recruitment and getting like really brilliant students. Uh, and I thought, well, public service institutions don't necessarily have the resources or the capacity to be able to do something like that. Um, but I. I wasn't quite sure what the frustration was that, that I was having. And I think in talking to my friends who have gone out into consulting, a lot of times we end up having the same conversation, which is three months in, oh, I'm feeling a little burned out. Don't really know what I'm doing here. Um, but my supervisor likes me, I'm, I'm getting good projects and, and whatnot. And then six months later, it's sort of the same conversation. Uh, and while I think there's certainly value in being exposed to a number of different sectors, uh, perhaps a number of different issue areas, if you're not sure, um, I do think that it, it, it monopolizes the kind of student career path uh, or immediately out of college. Uh, and so I was a bit frustrated with that and was trying to figure out how to, how to articulate it. And then I watched this speech by Anand Gerdhardis about, um, it, what he calls it, the speech itself was called The Thriving World, The Wilting World, and You. Uh, and it was about analyzing the role that the winners of our day have in, in decision-making um, and that the power they have in influencing certain projects and societies. And then he wrote a book on it called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Um, and there he, he really makes distinctions between uh, generosity and having sort of a side hustle that uh, might be giving back and justice of, of making it sort of a, uh, the focal point. Uh, and so that's when, when you, when you said, what about, what do I think about that? No one else thinks about, I mean, the nice thing is now as that book has come out, I've seen so many of my friends who maybe I sent the, the, the speech to be like, oh my gosh, now I'm reading this. This is so good. Or, or I see people who I hadn't talked to in a while, you know, post about it on Facebook and say, this is exactly what I was thinking. And I, I feel like, um, it's, it's great to know that there's sort of that, that, uh, sense of, uh, shared uh, line of inquiry. Right. And so, I don't know if you're familiar with um, William Derizovic, uh, I can't pronounce his second name, but William Derizovic's uh, ex uh, essay, Excellent Sheep. I don't know if you've yes, heard of that. Yes. Yeah, I've read it. How does this, how does that book compare to the concept of excellent sheep? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there are similar uh, analyses about the decision-making process that students have to do in their honestly now earlier than junior year right. it's got crazy right it's gotten crazy i mean you you line up an internship at the end of sophomore year you know you're going to have a job for five years out of uh out of college and then they might pay for grad school and you you know you go through a couple more um i i think the the to the detriment of that is that unfortunately that becomes the ends of a college education uh no doubt gaining 
the 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 career or stable employment after college is so important. Um, but even these consultancies recruit out of things like arts and letters or, or, or schools like arts and letters. Um, they want to see how people think. They want to see what uh, what your problem solving ability is. Um, and so it, it it is. I think I think it has some of the same types of analyses that the black sheep uh, essay has in terms of uh, limiting the scope of of students. Um, Either line of inquiry or 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 s- scope of of professional uh, advancement outside of college, right? Because I hear a lot of my consulting friends talk about the fact that what they're most jealous of me having is the time to think uh, in their line of work. It's not really about thinking up a brand new idea or perspective. It's about getting to a solution that they can then sell to a client for some fee, and hoping that they're happy. One of the questions I do want to dive deep into is why do you think you've been so successful um, as an academic, you know, as, a, as someone, you know, in the academy and as a scholar? You know, are there any habits, um, traits, characteristics, talents that you think have lasted you well there? And then as a second question, how has that impacted how you invest your time? Mm. Uh, academically, I certainly credit Africana studies and peace studies. I think one thing that they did was provide uh, an interdisciplinary education that just could not be matched. Africana studies, I was able to look at uh, post-genocide development in Rwanda, and I was also able to look at social movement theory uh, as it related to uh, the civil rights movement. Um, Within peace studies, looking at conflict resolution, uh, looking at ways to escalate and mitigate conflict, as we were talking about earlier, uh, looking at international negotiations. And it was essentially, I mean, I, in, in many ways, it was like an international relations course uh, with an emphasis on, on, on peace and conflict resolution. Um, so I credit that interdisciplinary lens quite a bit. I'm now in political science, which most of my friends thought I was actually doing in undergrad, but I wasn't doing political science in undergrad. I'm now doing political science, and I'm glad I went this direction, actually, because right. in some ways, you look at Africana studies, and it was a discipline that was developed um, in rejection to the conventional wisdom of a particular uh, part of academia and saying that the, the canon that's being taught on things like sociology and, uh, and, and political science uh, and um, uh, cultural studies is not representative of uh, a particular history or experience. And that's what Africana Studies was about. Uh, and I'm glad that I took that first um, because it gave me a particular uh, lens, lens of critical race theory uh, to examine some of these broader questions within uh, political science about legitimating institutions, about uh, representation in a political environment, about uh, voting and, and checks and balances and all sorts of things. Right. And I think that's so fascinating um, because it, in many ways, and, and I think this rings true in finance, maybe more than anyone else, if you want to get out, outsized returns, you do have to do things differently. You know, it's very, very few people are achieving outside returns by just doing the things everybody else does. Yeah. And so I think that's one of your biggest strengths of, not that you haven't been at the center of some incredible institutions, be it a national championship winning fencing team, Notre Dame, uh, now Oxford and, and, the, and the kind of Rhodes Trust, but that you're looking at things still from an outside perspective as a, as a boy from Columbus, Ohio. That's right. Who wasn't allowed to watch R-rated movies. And, and I think that's kind of cool, man. Yeah, yeah thank um, you. I know there was a specific story that you wanted to tell 
about, uh, I'm assuming it was a professor tearing up while reading Inferno. Would yeah. you mind sharing that with the audience at home? Absolutely. Um, so Gary Gutting was a phenomenal uh, professor at Notre Dame uh, in philosophy. He unfortunately passed away earlier this year. But uh, it was in an honors program class, and we just, it was a great books program. So we, we read uh, Iliad um, all the way to, uh, to um, No Exit uh, in, in the fall, or sorry, in the spring. But we were reading Dante's Inferno, and I always, it, it wasn't a lecture class, it was a discussion. And what I loved about it was that uh, Professor Gutting always um, participated. And he always would be the first one to sort of talk about which passage he found beautiful. So Tuesdays, we would talk about the work as a whole. And then Thursdays, we would um, discuss a particular passage that we found meaningful. So we're reading Dante's Inferno and Professor Gutting goes and he goes to the passage about um, uh, Francesca uh, and Francesca, the reason Francesca's in, I think, the second circle of hell. Um, and it was that she was in a loveless marriage and uh, had, had fell, fell in love with someone else. Um, and the line ends, there's a beautiful, beautiful passage about uh, eternity and memory. And then the line ends by saying, and she read no more that day, or they read no more that day um, about uh, the book of Lancelot. And it, it was quiet and Professor Gutting uh, didn't say anything. And we all kind of looked up from our books and noticed that he was just crying. And he was crying because he felt that it was one of the most beautiful passages that he ever read. Uh, and that really stuck with me because it was a professor who, one, wasn't afraid to be vulnerable and right. talk about what moves him. And it, and it like revealed why he actually was doing what he was doing. It's because it, ideas mattered to him. He was a philosopher. But beauty mattered to him. And, and, and the, the influence that it could have on how someone views the world mattered to him. Um, so that was just a really special experience as, as professors go. I mean, I, there's a lot of professor stories I could, I could tell, but. Right. It isn't that amazing, right? That really what it was is it was, it was the identification of that, of that human moment of, of why he committed his life to a specific space. And yeah, man, I mean, I, I've had a handful of professors as of you. I'm not sure how many have done that. Right. But the very wet, the very best ones, they damn do it. Damn right. Yeah. And I, I think that's what makes them so brilliant is it, it humanizes them and gives you a lens through which you can communicate. And it makes the whatever you're reading living. I mean, I think I think when people get bored with certain classes, sometimes it's because the it's viewed as, well, why why is this, what, what utility does this have for? What does this give me? Um, rather than just a pure appreciation of something that, that, that is beautiful. Right. That's fantastic. Um, you mentioned earlier that you were um, falling into law school right. um, at the time of the roads. Right. And so I'm interested, now, given your point about consultancies right. and you know the limited line of inquiry that people have, as you look at your own discernment process, do you feel like that was, was that happening to you at that time uh, with law school or was it something else that was going on? I think it felt like an... And then that, I mean, I did, so I did work in between uh, graduating and grad school, but with the back of my mind always being, well, if I can't make up my mind on what kind of grad school I want to go to, obviously law. Uh, it, it's some it's relevant to the the types of uh, uh, in, inquiry that I'm interested in. All the people who I admire, they seem to have law degrees. Um, not all of them use them, 
Um, but I was also going against advice from people who were saying, well, if you don't want to be a lawyer, don't go to law school, which plenty of people do, do go. Um, so I was falling into that in, in some way. And I think I, the best, I mean, a, a sort of lesson and advice that I can give is uh, not that you're luckily going to necessarily get something that transports you out of that line, but that to be very skeptical of making decisions based on, well, I don't know what else I'm going to be doing, uh, especially around grad school. Um, I'm not particularly passionate about law school per se, but I don't know what else, which else I would do. Maybe, maybe grad school is not necessarily the right, uh, the right path. Maybe, uh, uh, there, there are other opportunities or, or, uh, variations on the type of grad school that you could be searching out. Um, so I think just to be skeptical of, of if that inner voice is saying, you know, I'm not quite sure what else I'm doing at this point or what, what else I would be doing, um, to put that out there to people who, who you either are close with, whether they be professors or peers and, um, and you never know when you, when you kind of put out to the world stuff that you're interested in, uh, especially in a university type environment, uh, you, you never know how, how interested and connected people can be to try to get you where you want to go. Right. So what does your life look like these days? Oh, whatever I want them to look like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> better or, or worse. Um, so yeah, I work, I'm two years in the PhD. Um, I, you know, try to get a solid amount of writing and, and reading done every day. Do you have a, a routine habit? Uh, I've been trying to get into a routine for, for, for two years. I, I've realized that I do work better, especially at least in this environment, um, rather than, than a particular job, I work better in spurts. So I'll have a three week period where I'm writing a, an enormous amount every day, uh, cause I'm really feeling it. Uh, and I've, I've read a lot at that point. I've taken a lot of notes. I, I've been able to see how they fit together. Um, and then it might take me another week uh, or two to sort of get back to that same type of, uh, of output. Um, so not quite a, a routine. I, I mean, you know, try to, try to work out consistently and try to get enough sleep. Um, but uh, it, it's certainly the PhD life is, it does give you time to think, sometimes too much time to think, that's for sure. It's fascinating. How do you know, uh, I have a bunch of questions. Let me just start with this. How do you know you've had too much time to think? And then second, I'd love to know if you subscribe to the belief of uh, structured procrastination. Sure, sure. Uh, I'd like to buy that notion of structured procrastination because I think it could describe a lot. But uh, I think you realize you have had too much time to think when you are uh, analyzing to the point of paralysis. And I think the, the, the biggest thing, and I'm still working on it, I, I still really struggle with it, but the biggest thing that the PhD has taught me is that you just have to write, you just have to sort of put words to paper, and then you might never use them again uh, because you might come to another line of inquiry or, or another way to edit them. Um, and you have to be willing to, to go through those revisions and go through those editing periods. And if you're not able to get to that point, then, you're, then you are thinking, you, you have too much time to think. Um, you're not, if you're not getting the words on paper, um, I think also if you're, if you're burned out, if you get to the point where you're just not enjoying what, what you're right. doing, uh, I think that's a big telltale sign. Right. And on that point of structured procrastination, um, a good friend of mine, Aman, I, I read this on his blog, but Mark Andreessen, the founding partner of Andreessen Horowitz kind of talks about structured procrastination and he believes you should have no routine. Yeah. Um, and then the best time to do something is when you want to do it. Yeah. Um, and obviously there are limits to that, totally. like bills and <laughs> PhD deadlines. Right. But, you know, he talks about um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's book, 
uh, which I think is Total Recall. And basically said that was one of Arnold's competitive advantages, was that he was able to do so much because he just did it when he felt like it and did it really well. And I'm not saying oh, that's a bulletproof yeah. view, but I, I do believe that the space that academia affords you to think, to be inspired, to be spontaneous, to bump right. into someone, that doesn't exist in the corporate world. It doesn't, no. And and it and it is quite a privilege. Um, and I and I and I do think about where my thesis has progressed. Um, uh, generally, it's it's on sort of the politics of dependency, but it didn't start there. And right. I think it started in a place that just did not have necessarily a clear path forward. Um, and it has there have been many different iterations. Um, and so I'm I'm happy with where I am now, uh, with a particular line of inquiry. And I wouldn't have been that happy had I gone forward with with something that I had thought about you know a year and a half ago. Right. So Alex, you're very generous for your time. I'm going to have one more question around proving your worth and then I'd like to get into some fun quick fire stuff. All right, great. To wrap this up because I feel like we could talk for hours Yeah. and we both yeah. have dinners to go to <laughs> and beers to finish. Um, so tell me now, I mean there's a lot of people who are listening, wow, student body president, national championship winning fencer, Rhodes Scholar, Truman Scholar. Do you still have to earn your stripes and prove your worth? And if so, how do you do it, given how accomplished you have been? There, it's a good question. Um, I think for your, for my own betterment, it's good when I know that I still have to earn stripes. Um, we were talking a, a bit on the tube about um, sort of proving yourself in Oxford in, in a whole new environment, a new, a new academic environment. And I think walking into a room thinking, okay, I, there shouldn't be any assumptions about me and, and what, uh, what I can bring to the table. Um, I'm going to show you, I, I, I need to show you, and I'm going to show you time and time again, and I'm going to show up time and time again. Uh, I think that's to me, uh, kind of the mentality I want to have about, about sort of proving, proving your worth. I think especially on particular issue areas, um, you know, there's a, there's sort of a mentality of having like a quick one-off fix to everything and solution to everything. And I think showing that this particular area, your thinking might evolve in it, um, but this particular area is what you're committed to, um, that that ultimately kind of goes a long way in showing and uh, improving your worth perhaps on to weigh in on that area. Um, but it is, it is a, it is a good question. I think there are I, I, I like to think, I mean, I, I still meet with a, a lot of undergrads uh, at Notre Dame when I'm back for, for various things and they do know about me uh, as, as Rhodes or as student body president. And I, I, I like to think that we have a conversation that's more about what they're interested in and what they can do and that uh, hope, hopefully they walk away thinking that I'm someone easy enough to talk to or uh, when they're old enough, have a beer with, I guess. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think um, not walking in the room with perhaps any assumptions about what people um, should uh, be expecting from you is important. And how do you like to show your caliber? <laughs> uh, do you have a flex? There is one. Do I have a flex? The only the only flex I mm, this is a good question. Do I have a flex? I I, I do like I do like surprising people sometimes. So. Uh, uh, maybe this will go into some of your other questions, but I, I like to tell dad jokes. I tell a lot of dad jokes, and like that that <laughs> drives drives people crazy uh, sometimes. Uh, I don't think you can ever have too many dad jokes, but others would disagree. Um, but 
one of the things that I got invited to do when I was in Oxford was um, uh, do a, a comedy debate, which like is pretty big in Australia. So they have this comedy debate where it's three versus three, and uh, you, it, it, you you're supposed to give a speech, you're supposed to give a rousing speech, and you're supposed to make it funny. Um, and the first time I got invited, I got invited because the debate was about Donald Trump, and it was a again supposed to be a comedy debate. It was before the election. Wow. Uh, and I was the token American on on one of the teams. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I did pretty well. I made people laugh and uh, and and roar. And I left. I had invited a bunch of my friends, and I left. And a lot of them were like, "Well, damn, I I didn't know you were funny. That's pretty good." So oh. stuff like that, I like to. Okay. Go in there maybe as a as a bit of a flex. So you stand up stand up comic on the side. Well, right? so not stand up comic because I, I I don't think I would do well in a in a um, impromptu sort of uh, top top uh, what's it see this is Jason point top of mind right top of mind yeah um, but but if I can spend time craft crafting a a funny speech I can do that I can do that and and make it pretty good um, with with a humor that maybe people wouldn't necessarily expect from me. It's brilliant. Um, okay, so let's get in some quick fire because mm-hmm. uh, you've been very, very kind. Um, first question. Okay. What do you want to be remembered for? I think simple enough, being a good person. I think being being present when I need to be, um, being true to my values, um, helping when I can and, and trying the rest of the time. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's what I'd like to be, be remembered for most, and especially amongst my friends. Brilliant. Favorite book? Ooh, um, the one I go back to time and time again would probably be The Plague by Albert Camus. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's brilliant. I think a lot of people think he's a pessimist, but I think he's quite uh, hopeful. Uh, he, he talks a lot about how to get Europe out of a out of um, the post-war um, sort of dearth and uh, and think about uh, what sort of values you have to protect uh, as humankind uh, and the the plague I think encapsulates a lot of that uh, I won't give away the ending but there well I won't give away the plot but there is a plague uh, and it's about the doctor uh, <laughs> the doctor who who sort of stays in this in this town to to sort of see to the patients but it ends with sort of this very hopeful but sober reflection about um, battling certain injustices that uh, uh, that the, the the fight is never quite over um, but that it can change and that each each iteration can bring hope to kind of a new generation philosopher oh well I mean Temu I guess would be would be would be the philosopher there musician Depends on the time. Depends on the mood. Um, I grew up with Billy Joel, Simon and Garfunkel, and John, Mamas of the Papas, Peter Paul and Mary. Uh, and I, I like Chance the Rapper. I uh, shy tell. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Went went to his concert here at O2 uh, at the O2 Brixton, which was great. Amazing. Uh, you know, Lana Del Rey. Whenever the whenever the mood hits, uh, I think I, I think quite a few. The only one I can't really I can't get behind metal, heavy metal. I'm. I just don't like being yelled at when I, I'm trying to enjoy a song. Now I know what to send you for Christmas. Yeah, there you go. Um, who's most exciting to you right now? I would say I would say Anand Hardis and his and his work. Um, 
And I think I think he with winners take all uh, that book. But I, I think he also is representing a sort of debate that's going on on the left that is really exciting to me um, about what the future of, of, of the left politics is going to look like that that really brings to the forefront a moral um, articulation of policy that I think has gone uh, sort of to the to the side um, in, in favor of a more technocratic approach. Um, and this is something that both liberals and conservatives have done is, is sort of move towards the more uh, technocratic approach. But uh, some of the issues we're dealing with, you just you just can't have that. I, I remember reading this one article that that talked about how uh, there is no technocratic language for what's happening at the border and, and what's happening on issues like family separation. Um, and if you use technocratic language, you are severely missing the point. Um, so I think the, for better or for worse, the, the reinvigoration of some of the moral language is, is super important and something I'm excited about. What brings you joy? Dogs. Uh, quick way to my heart, quick way to give me a smile uh, is to see a dog. Um, I really like stumbling across uh, scribbles in kind of secondhand books from, from the bookstore. Um, and then I guess a recent one that a lot of my Oxford friends will laugh at me for because I bring it up all the time are lampposts. So I, I love uh, I love lampposts at night when they're shining and illuminating uh, a, a small portion of, of what's in front and behind them. Uh, and it all was because I, I did this walking tour, uh, for one of those free walking tours in Lisbon, Portugal. And it was raining the whole time. It was an absolutely miserable sort of tour for the most part. Um, and the guy, Miguel, kept talking about um, details. And he was hammering home this idea of how much details matter in a city like Lisbon. And he was painting, he was looking at the tiles and uh, and then he pointed out the lamppost, but it was still bright out. So we, I wasn't really paying attention to those. And it was kind of tiresome. And he just kept hammering this home, but to the to to an excessive point, I thought. But then it finally got dark and he was leading us through this winding street and we go up these stairs and then he says, okay, turn around. And you turn around and you could see the entire city of Lisbon through this, this alleyway. Uh, and to the right, there was this lamppost and it was, it was pretty crooked. And Miguel said, um, you see the lamppost, it's, it's uh, a little too much to the right. It's not straight, but it's beautiful. And so ever since then, I can't really go to a city and not notice the lampposts uh, or the type of light. Like Oxford, for example, the lampposts have a very weird orange light that comes out of them. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not necessarily a white color. It's not, uh, it, it, right. yeah, it's sort of this weird, I don't know, I mean, I'm not scientific enough to know, to know exactly what, what kind of uh, uh, lamp or light bulb would be, but, uh, but it's something I notice now quite a bit. And, and I was, you know, have to smile when I, when I pass one that I like. Brilliant. I love how esoteric that is. Um, <laughs> final question. I stole this from your class curriculum. Yeah. Because I thought it was such a great question. Are there any texts, quotes, or movies that you go back to time and time again that are foundational to how you think and act? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Camus is definitely my favorite writer, but but more his critical and lyrical essays um, than, say, The Stranger or, or The Plague. Uh, he's, he has this way of taking... Uh, a place that he's traveled to and then eliciting some sort of uh, philosophical discussion. So for example, he writes about New York, but he writes about the feeling of, of loneliness in a crowd. I think it's a brilliant way wow. to, to think about perhaps time spent uh, in, a, in, a, in a place like, like New York or a big city. Um, so I love, I, I, I go back to him for, for quotes. I don't know, for romance, I go to uh, Rilke. Uh, Rilke has uh, letter, letters to a young poet and uh, there's a there's a quote in there about um, love being the the work that 
all work, all other work is, is simply preparation for it. Um, for kind of inspiration on, on writing, there's a creative writer named Eula Bliss, who I think she's at Northwestern, but she has this brilliant way of pulling together different ideas um, uh, that are seemingly not related. Um, she has a beautiful one on, on how she sees um, telephone poles and the influence of communication, um, but relates it to, to um, the uh, lynchings that would happen from telephone poles. Uh, and it's quite a sobering picture that she paints. Uh, she also has a beautiful one on identity politics, uh, and so I, I, I like going to her quite a bit. Um, but there's there's always different ones that pop up, and then there will be ones that I'll forget about, but I've marked in books that I have, and then I'll be sort of going back through and seeing one. I'm like, ah, this one actually is now speaking to me. Right. Um, I don't necessarily believe that 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 it, there's always a time and place for it, but I, it does seem like whenever I am in need of a particular quote, I'll go back and I'll see something that I've underlined and written, and be like, okay. This, this didn't speak to me as much at the time, but I, I think this is a good one for now. Amazing. Um, Alex, final thing for me, it's been amazing to have you. Um, thank you for the time today. Um, it's just been a blast to, to be here in London, my home and, and your home away from home now. Thank you. Uh, six years on from when we met is amazing. And uh, I think you've given us a lot, a lot to think about. Um, but as I always end this, if people are inspired by this conversation, if they want to reach out, um, if they want to connect, where can they find you? Absolutely. Um, I do have a LinkedIn. Uh, I don't use it all that much, but uh, I, I would definitely respond on on uh, on the messenger. Um, finding my Oxford email online is, is, is pretty easy. I would easily respond to, to that. But uh, yeah, I would definitely love to, to sort of share ideas and, and speak to anyone who's interested in similar things. Um, that's cool. Or who wants to push back, I don't know. Uh, maybe uh, maybe some good conversations to be had. Right. We'll find you in Lisbon, staring at the lampposts. Yeah. Well, don't distract me if I'm doing that. Paying for paying a few dollars to <laughs> stick to heavy metal. Sounds like Kevin. <laughs> well, Alex, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, it's truly been a pleasure. I'd be at a great dinner. You too. And uh, yeah. very excited to see what you go on to do. Thank you. Thanks for being Speak to you soon, guys. Bye bye. <laughs> And I'm in bed in the park and walk with God. Right, right, right,